0: Our New Testament Scripture reading comes from the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death the word of the lord be to God.
1: this part of revelation begin with chapter 21 judgment's over it's been done it's mentioned but it's not really described again in revelation But it's done. Judgment. We looked at it last week. And now the focus is on. What happens afterward? What happens with the people of God? And you say, well, that's heaven, of course. What I'm about to say might surprise you. I think Christians... Evangelical Christians, even that believe in the reality of heaven, I think know little, really, about what the Bible teaches, about what happens next. So these next three Sundays, beginning this morning, we're going to take a close look. And I pray, my prayer is... That we will all grow in our knowledge and understanding. Because until we really understand this. How can we look forward with anticipation? So, before we come to this passage and open it. Let's pray. And ask the Father to teach us about this doctrine of which we know so Little. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you. Thank you for your presence in this worship. Thank you for this covenant baptism that you have built into the worship of your people. Thank you for this family. Thank you for the choir this morning. For the music. Thank you for the hymns that were written by the saints before us. Our Father, your blessings are constant, minute by minute, second by second. We're bathed in your grace. We're bathed in your blessings. And Father, we pray that you will teach us to live thankful lives, that our thankfulness might be as constant as your blessings. Our Father, we give thanks for this new baby that you have given the Arnolds and the McLarens. Thank you for Ford. We pray, Father, that you would sustain him in the hospital, keep him from any complications, sustain Father Page, bring, Father, healing to her body we pray for Phil and Sally Halley. Father, we pray that you would bless Phil. Father, restore the motions in his limbs, bring a complete healing to his body. Our Father, we thank you for Sylvia Clarendon. We pray that you would be with her and draw close to her there in her home in Mississippi. Father, thank you for how she has supported this church in so many ways. We pray that you would fill her with your spirit and give her grace. Now, Father, as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference in our lives. But in these next few minutes, we pray that we would hear your voice in our hearts. Oh, Father. Teach us in the power of your Spirit. May we know when we leave here that we've been in your presence. Continue that change that you have begun in us. Continue that change, Father. Grow us in Christ. For his glory, we pray. Amen. The great transition. After Jesus returns, after the final judgment of the wicked, what happens? What happens with God's people? Last week, we looked at one of the most sobering and cataclysmic scenes in the history of mankind. We watched the great and final judgment of the wicked. Why did God put that dreadful and catastrophic truth before us? Why did he do that? Why had he spoken of that event throughout his word Why did Jesus speak so much about that final judgment? Why did Jesus speak more than any other person in scripture about the final judgment? Go back and read the gospels. Read what he said. He meant for it to be a warning. He was telling the sinner that a final reckoning was coming indeed. As sure as the sun's rising tomorrow morning, that's what Jesus would say. Just as sure. That judgment with a capital J is coming. This is a reality. He spoke it in mercy as a warning. It is now with the same reverence and awe. We were last week, the Lord Descended you it on us in the power of the Spirit. Well, again, this morning, it's with the same reverence and the same awe that we approach the destiny of God's people. We have seen the destiny of the wicked. Now in chapters 21 and 22, Jesus addresses the destiny of his followers in the Gospels. He spoke of how significant this was, how significant The resurrection, how significant the life of his followers, the life of his disciples, the life of those who followed him, how significant that time will be. Look at John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus is speaking to Martha after the death of her brother. Jesus did not get there in time to heal him. And Martha's saying, why weren't you here? And so Jesus is addressing her. And he's speaking about what? He's speaking about the resurrection. And he said to her, I am the resurrection and life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he said this. He looked at this dear sister that he loved. Martha. Do you believe this? This is reality. You find this over and over again. In John 14, he's speaking to the disciples. Jesus will soon be leaving. And in John 14, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And what does he say? My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, mark it, look at this. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. He was saying, guys, this is a reality. It's important. It's vitally important that you understand this, that you know this. It will make a difference. And he just pleads with it. If it were not so, if it were not so, those words rang in my ears all week long. If it were not so, would I have told you all that I've told you? You see, Jesus knew that we would have a proclivity not to believe in such a destiny. Just Just as the world scoffs at the idea of the eternal judgment of the wicked, the world scoffs at that. Well, in the same way, I'm afraid Christians look at the destiny described by Jesus and thinks, oh, this is pie in the sky by and by. We can't imagine anything but this material world. We can't imagine anything else. Frederick Nietzsche in the 19th century declared God to be dead. God is dead, he said. Modern man had killed him. God was dead. And so was the supernatural. God was no more. There wasn't any such thing as a supernatural. That's what Nietzsche taught. Absolute right and wrong. You want to know where this idea of there are no absolutes came from? It came from Frederick Nietzsche in the 19th century. That's where it started. Nietzsche said Jesus lied. There is no hell. There is no heaven. There's no absolute. And his thought has dominated the 20th and 21st centuries. The supernatural is scorned. People say today, oh, I believe in God. Yeah. No, they don't. Because everything about our lives denies the supernatural in our culture. So Christian. This morning in Revelation 21, Jesus is asking us, do you believe this? And you say, actually, in our text, he says that. Yes, he does. This is real. This is true. Look at verse 5 of Revelation 21. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. And what did he say next? Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. In the country, in Virginia, where I was raised, if you wanted to say, this is absolutely true, you would say, write it on the loft. You'd walk in an old barn and you would see, written in the loft, different things that people said that wanted to be remembered. They said, write this. Jesus says this to John. Write it down, John. Write it down. This is faithful and true. Jesus was shouting from the throne. If that were not so, would I have told you I'm going to a a place for you? Satan and Nietzsche would have their followers walk through life mocking God's law and judgment. And what happens in the end? In the end, they're totally unprepared to stand before God. Satan and Nietzsche would likewise rob the Christian of the reality of the beauty and wonder of the coming glory. The followers of Christ, who do not believe in the reality of heaven, they don't believe in the reality of a new earth, That so-called Christian is just like Nietzsche and just like Satan. That person's calling Jesus a liar. This morning, if you believe it's all pie sky, all pie in the sky by and by, if you don't believe this is real, you're standing before Jesus Himself, the Lord from glory, and saying, Jesus, you're a liar. the person that says that says, yeah, I struggle with this. I struggle believing it. If he's really a Christian, a lover of Christ, but doubts these words of Jesus, then he's being robbed of the wonderful anticipation that Jesus wanted him to have. We read it this morning. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil for thou art with me. And what? And I will read it and I call to worship And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm frequently asked, what will heaven be like? Usually people that ask that question don't even begin to understand what they're asking. We've seen throughout the New Testament and especially in Revelation that when people when the people of Christ die, their souls go to be with him. That's what we read. Their souls go to be with him immediately over and over again in revelation. We have seen the saints who have physically died already home in glory with Jesus. That's the teaching of the entire new Testament. Look at second Corinthians chapter five, verse eight. Yes. We are of good courage. We're of good courage. We're not afraid. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Can you say that? I'd rather be. I'd rather be absent from the body and be present with the Lord. But what we see in this passage before us and other places in the New Testament is that God actually, what is heaven like? God actually creates a new earth. He renews the earth. Look at Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Now let's stop right here and understand what has taken place up to these wonderful words in Revelation 21, 1. After the ascension, when the people of Christ physically died, their souls went to glory to dwell with him. In Revelation, when we see the vision of the saints in glory, we've seen it over and over again. It's always their souls. We do not see their resurrected bodies. It just says their souls. Paul has told us in 2 Thessalonians 4, you know the passage, it talks about the second coming. And Jesus will not be coming alone. Who's coming with him? And you say, well, the angels. Well, the angels may be coming. But it says specific in that passage, he will bring with him those that have gone before. If Jesus returns this afternoon, the souls of my mom and dad, and my brother Mike will be coming with him. That's what it says. They'll receive resurrected bodies. They will once more be body and soul As God had created them to be. So look at the passage before us. They do not return to heaven. From whence they came with Christ. Look at this. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city. We're going to talk more about the holy city. The new Jerusalem. The bride of Christ. We're going to talk about that. Not today. But we will next week. The week after that. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem. Come down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be with his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What John is watching is taking place on earth. Look at it again, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. This is not the saints rising to heaven. This is is the holy city coming down, the church coming down. You see, it is a new or renewed earth. The very first, Verse of chapter 21 states the theme of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Everything comes after that. That's the theme. Everything comes after that explains it. Everything has changed. We're not looking at the church or Christians gathered in the glory of heaven John was seeing a renewed creation, a restored creation, body and soul in the new creation. Those of us that remain, if the Lord returns this afternoon, will be changed and instantly receive new bodies. You see, you've got to look at it this way. God had aimed his providence He had aimed his entire creation to this recreation since Genesis 3. What happened in the third chapter of Genesis when man sinned? Man sinned against God and his very being was changed. He was changed at the core of his being. He still retained the image of God. But now that image didn't serve God anymore. It served self and sin and Satan Man had a sin nature, a natural inclination to rebel against God. But creation was also changed. It was not that man fell and the rest of creation stayed the same. Everything around Adam and Eve, everything around them, the the garden, everything changed in that moment. The entire creation was affected. The entire creation fell. Look at the words in Genesis 3, beginning to read with verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your faith you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Since that day of degradation, and it was a severe, awful degradation, God had been aiming toward Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth. And we see it in Scripture. Isaiah prophesied of God's plan to restore his creation. Look at Isaiah 65, 17. Mark it down. For behold, I create, this is in the Old Testament now. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. For the rest of the chapter 65, read it this afternoon. Isaiah 65, the rest of the chapter speaks to Isaiah about this new earth that he will create. Then again, in Isaiah 66, God speaks of it once more. Isaiah 66, 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. So fast forward to the New Testament. The greatest theologian, and you know, John, John and Paul were just, they were the theologians of the New Testament. And here is Paul. In this great theology book, the book of Romans, and the centerpiece in Romans is Romans chapter eight. And in chapter eight, read this with me. I encourage you. I, I would push you. I would grab you. By the Bible tells them say, "Do this." Memorize these verses. They're beautiful, and you'll see just how much you can use them. In Romans eight eighteen, for I consider. That the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. What a verse to memorize. You face an awful day. Someone dies. You're hurt. You've suffered a debilitating injury or disease. It's a bad day. What do you say? For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Do you see that? That the creation itself, he's not talking about men. we we talking about the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been grown in together with the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is Paul saying? We not only wait for the return of Christ in the complete restoration of mankind. We wait for the restoration of all creation. The creation, he's, the creation, he says, yearns for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. When Christ returns, we'll be changed. The creation yearns for that. As all creation will be set free from the curse, all creation will be restored. That is what Jesus is saying in Revelation 21. That's the message. Let's take a brief, just a brief walk through this renewed and restored creation and see what's changed. Look, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Is that not a strange thing? And the sea was no more. What does that mean? Had God removed the oceans? I'll remind you again, over and over again, we say said this in Revelation. All these visions are f- completely symbolic. This does not mean that there will be no oceans, no water. We're going to read about a river uh, later that's wherever this is. It doesn't mean there's no oceans. How do I know that? All right? Let's return to chapter 13 in Revelation. Where was Satan at the end of chapter 12? Do you remember? He had been defeated in heaven. He had lost his foothold in heaven. And was thrown from heaven by the power of the blood of the Lamb. He was thrown to the earth. Satan was enraged. And he made war against the church. Against the people of God. So angry. So He is on earth, engaged in a constant war to destroy the church. Now, I want to ask you this. Who remembers where he was standing, where Satan was standing at the end of chapter 12? I remember the first time I saw this, I said, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, let's read it. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. And then the dragon, that's Satan, became furious with the woman, that's the church, and he went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And then what do you read next? Chapter 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with the ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns, on his horns and blasphemous names on his head. He stood on the sands of the sea. He was looking out the sea. In scripture, folks, the sea is used as a sign of unrest, of chaos. It's used to represent sometimes the history of all mankind. The disruption, the mayhem, the cataclysm, the plagues that or have been in every civilization in this fallen world. So what's happening? As the dragon is looking out, it's not saying that he's looking out at the ocean like we stand on the sands of destiny looking. No, Satan is looking at his kingdom. He's looking at the nations filled with rebellion. Every person in every nation with the sin nature rebelling against God. He looks at the disruptive, chaotic, cataclysmic, and rebellious history of mankind. That's what he's looking at. And out of this history, out of this evil, rises this creature, this... When we say, and I saw rising out of the sea with ten hordes and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns and blasphemous names on it. He was seeing the Antichrist rise up. Out of the sea of humanity. Out of the sea of sinful humanity. So in chapter 21 in the new creation. God had not necessarily removed the oceans. He had removed the disruptive, chaotic, cataclysmic, sinful, anti-God and anti-Christ culture from the earth. He had removed Satan's culture, Satan's kingdom from the earth. This is reaffirmed in verse 8. But as For the cowardly, the faithless, the testable, as for murderers, the the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, all their liars, their portions will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, in the previous chapter, we saw their judgment. It was in detail. The emphasis here is not on judgment. The emphasis here, it's no longer present. It's been removed. That's the, one of the great, great differences in this new creation. There's the evil is gone. He talks about it another way in verse 4. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Again, this is symbolic. He will not take some kind of heavenly tissue and wipe away our tears. He will have removed the effects of sin and the fall that has caused our tears. What causes the tears? What causes our sorrow? What causes our crying and pain and mourning? Sickness does. Illness does. Cancer does. Slavery does. Addiction does. Oppression does. Rape and murder and stealing does. Do you realize? I was thinking about this this week. All these, the sin's going to be gone. I can't imagine, I've said this before just a couple, I can't imagine what it's like not to have a sin nature. Can't imagine it. No lies. I thought about this week. We're not going to have police. No need to. We're not going to have. Courts in terms of the judgment of criminals. No need to. I'm always amused by people trying to get detailed about the new heaven and the new earth. Imagine, imagine trying to tell a baby in the womb. The baby's two weeks from being born. And you set up some kind of electronic device, put it on the mother's tummy. And you start talking to that baby about the Rocky Mountains, about the oceans, about the great cities, about snow and rain. there's no way that baby can't imagine what's rain what's snow what's a sea you know we don't have an imagination big enough to understand to really get this new creation God describes it in some ways. We're going to look at it. Eric Alexander, my friend, the great minister of Scotland, who the Lord took home just recently today, he's in glory. His soul is in glory. When he talks about this, he says. There's going to be, if you you know, if you look in general at this, there's going to be a continuity and there's going to be a discontinuity. That take Jesus for example. When he returned from the tomb, his disciples could recognize him. They ate with him. They walked with him. But there was a discontinuity. You know, he passed through the walls into the upper room where they were. He would be with them and then suddenly he would be gone. There was a discontinuity. In this new earth, in this renewed earth, we're going to see a continuity. We're going to see a discontinuity. That has been helpful to me, but it's not where I want to close today. I'm going to shift gears for a minute it's about a new creation in Psalm 19 verses 1 through 4 we're almost there almost at the end but hang with me I want you to see this it's very important we read about the creation this even the fallen creation David is saying this about the creation of his day The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. What's he saying? Every day, every second of every day, this creation sings to us of the creator. You people, you can't find a square inch on this globe that does not speak of God and His mercy and His grace and His greatness, His omnipotence, His omniscience. The Southern writer, James Lee Burke, he has a a favorite protagonist. His name is Dave Robicha. Dave Robichaud is flawed, he's fallen. You see it in every book. He lives on a a bayou in Louisiana. And at the close of one of the books, he's looking out over the bayou. And it's just beautiful, beautiful evening. And he has this thought, and he states it. Indeed, maybe the earth really is a domed cathedral. Now, folks, if it even now is a domed cathedral, and I think it is, that's what Psalm 19 says. If it is even now a domed cathedral, though fallen, think what it will be like when God's very presence permeates this new creation. When the evil is gone, when the fallen is gone. I've never understood Christians who are so caught up with this kind of spiritual thing in heaven, a a soul-only kind of plane. And all their lives, they're just ready to go to that, that spiritual plane. And yet, you look at their lives, and there's not one bit of interest in this creation I don't understand that. Now it's true. This creation has fallen. There's sin in us and the effects of that sin are all around us. But even in this fallen state, the Bible says the world shouts to us about the beauty and the majesty and transcendence of the glory of God. Susan Ertz was an English writer. And she wrote this, and I keep this one sentence where I can see it often. Millions long for immortality, but they don't know what to do on a rainy Sunday afternoon. I would paraphrase that and say, millions long for the next world when they don't know what to do on a rainy Sunday afternoon in this world. Oh, people. People. Jesus just didn't come and die for our sins. He didn't come and just make a quick appearance of perfect humanity, take our sins upon Himself, die under the judgment of God, and then go home to glory. Every page of the gospel, Jesus is living in this fallen world and He's pushing back the darkness. He hates it. He meets a blind man, he makes him see. He meets a deaf man, he makes him hear. He meets a paralyzed man, he makes him walk. He was about the business even then, of pushing back the darkness, of recreating this Earth. Now, if Jesus was about that business, how can we walk through this creation as if it doesn't exist with our eyes just fixed on heaven? Jesus has called us to live different lives to follow him in the life he's given us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He gave That marvelous, marvelous first and second chapter of Genesis. He gives creation. Here's this immense. He gives it to man. There's a parallel. You'll never get Revelation 21 and 22 until you understand that Jesus is drawing a parallel between Genesis 1 and 2 and the new heavens and the new earth. And in Genesis 1 and 2, he takes this magnificent creation. And what does he do with it? He gives, he says, I've made this for you. Nurture it. Rule over it. Manage it. Enjoy it. He never took away that mandate. And he lived this life before Peter and John and Andrew, pushing back the darkness everywhere he goes. What will you do this week? Will you just sit and wait and say, well, one day the new creation's coming. The new earth is coming. He didn't call us to sit and wait, folks. What are you going to do this week? You're going to push back the darkness? You're going to push back the darkness in your marriage, in your family? You're going to push it back at work? No. No, no, you won't we don't have the power to make a new earth but we can head in that direction and when Jesus returns he's going to finish it. Amen. Our hymn is most appropriate Be Thou My Vision, hymn number 642. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be inside of us and go with us and abide with us. And all of God's people said.